This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist, and I've lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years and have had a private practice here. I started self-work about three and a half years ago because I wanted to reach out to those of you who might be completely immersed in psychological and emotional issues, maybe even in therapy, and would appreciate another point of view or perspective. To those of you who might be initially diagnosed or recently diagnosed with some sort of mental illness and you've got a lot of questions. Or to those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist but are just curious enough to want to hear what a psychologist or mental health professional would have to say. Welcome to all of you. Today we're going to focus on what people mean when they say someone they love had a nervous breakdown. What does that phrase really mean, and is it a real thing, or some kind of slang we've adopted to describe something we don't really understand? On this episode of Self Work, sponsored by BetterHelp, I'll talk about that in the light of what's far more appealing, which is the idea of emotional release. What does that entail? And how can someone avoid a breakdown versus being aware of emotional stress or trauma that needs to have a place to vent, to be let go, to be released? Does that really do any good? Or is it like a boomerang that simply goes away for a while but comes right back into your awareness? We'll talk a little history as well, going back even to Sigmund Freud, who's considered the creator of psychoanalysis. Some of his ideas have been refuted, but some others were right on track. And we'll talk about one that we still see today. In fact, I'll suggest that other than his term hysteria, that there's several clinical diagnoses that are far more specific and that you need to know exist because a nervous breakdown could happen in your life or the life of someone you love, and there is treatment. The listener email today is from a listener from Thailand who was confused about the difference between self-pity and depression. I talked a little bit about this in episode 153, but called it a victim mentality, which I think is probably more accurate. But I'll address his specific question. So we're going to talk about, do nervous breakdowns really exist? What might they be called now? And what can you do about it, as we always talk about? Welcome to episode 181 of Self Work. Today, we're going to be talking about the disorders there are currently that might have been called a nervous breakdown years ago. They have now much more specific names and definitions. That term is still used by people who aren't very well educated about these kinds of issues, and also by some who cling to the idea that having a mental illness is something that reflects mental weakness or lack of character. I can assure you that some of the strongest people I know have fought with some kind of mental illness. It ain't easy, as the song says, and actually can create a kind of mental toughness. So how did we begin thinking of sudden mental illness as a breakdown? Because it was, in a way. What was normal wasn't normal anymore. Or the origins of the mental illness were unknown, so people thought these folks were possessed or lying or trying to gain attention. The answer to that is no, no, and no. Sigmund Freud, who was an interesting character in and of himself, went out on a huge limb as a psychiatrist back in the mid to late 1800s. 
I'm going to quote from an article from a British author, Chris Nicholson. In a radical departure from the practice of the day, which either paraded hysterical patients around at public demonstrations, as the French neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot did, or it treated them just as malingerers, Freud sat his patients down and listened attentively to them. After 10 years of this practice, Freud came to believe that behind every hysterical symptom, such as convulsions, paralysis, blindness, epilepsy, amnesia, or pain, lay a hidden trauma or series of traumas. It was Freud who proposed that the memory of trauma which the patient fails to confront because it will cause them too much mental anguish, that trauma can be converted into physical symptoms. What is more surprising is that cases like this are typical of those routinely seen today by neurologists. Freud called this condition hysteria. His patients, mostly women, were simply not able to function because of those convulsions, paralysis, hysterical blindness, whatever. Now, of course, at the time, it was believed that only women got such disorders. But when you think about how women were considered inferior and who knows what the rate of actual abuse was, it's no wonder that their emotional pain might get translated very easily into physical symptoms. I know actually about this phenomenon very well, as I did my dissertation on what are now called conversion disorders. I researched what are called pseudo-seizures, events that look like epileptic seizures, even grand mal seizures sometimes, but they're not actual seizures. If you hook these people up to EEG, there's no abnormal neurological activity going on. Conversion disorders are fascinating, but they're not very well researched. But surprisingly for them, if we began addressing the original trauma, their symptoms cleared. It could have been the death of a child, sexual abuse, deadly fires or tornadoes, public humiliation of some kind, such as a spouse being discovered and arrested for selling porn, and their emotional pain was unconsciously converted, hence the term conversion disorder, into some kind of physical symptom. Maybe you've heard the terms hysterical blindness or hysterical paralysis, or you've actually really probably heard of a hysterical pregnancy, maybe on the soap operas. There's a good book on psychosomatic disorders, which are a close cousin of conversion disorders, basically believing you have an illness that you don't have, but you experience the symptoms of that illness. I'll share that link with you. It's called It's All in Your Head. It's written by a psychiatrist who's very compassionate in her explanations, and I've actually ordered the book myself, so maybe after I read it, I'll do a podcast on it. You know, we could go on and on talking about conversion disorders. They're a little hard to comprehend. Your rational mind says, for example, with pseudoseizures, why would anyone want to have to go on meds, stop driving, actually hurt themselves physically while having an attack that looks like epilepsy? Why would someone do that? But one word is the answer. It's not that they want it. Like Freud showed us, it's unconscious. They're not telling themselves to do anything. It happens outside of their awareness. So let's keep in mind that now you understand something that someone might call a nervous breakdown, and it's a conversion disorder. But are there others? First, let's try to define what a nervous breakdown actually is. Certainly, when the term nervous breakdown began many years ago, it covered a wide gamut of illnesses. What were the signs? They varied from person to person and depended on the underlying cause. Also, it's interesting that what constitutes a nervous breakdown also varies from one culture to another. Generally, it's understood to mean that a person is no longer able to function normally. For example, they may call in sick to work for days or longer, avoid social engagements, and miss appointments, 
have trouble following healthy patterns of eating and sleeping. They may isolate and have very poor hygiene. A number of other unusual or dysfunctional behaviors may be considered signs and symptoms of a nervous breakdown because it's a huge grab bag of illnesses from all categories of illness that we now identify. A breakdown could look like depression, anxiety, insomnia, mood swings, sudden outbursts, panic or paranoia, or of course, PTSD. Some of the quote-unquote nervous breakdowns I've seen, someone who lost their ability to speak and they have to relearn it. Someone who constantly felt as if their skin was on fire. Even the Cleveland Clinic couldn't figure out what was wrong. Someone else who had stroke-like symptoms and struggled even to walk that had come on very suddenly and there was no stroke. Someone who couldn't sleep without the TV on and the lights blaring. All of these people had severe trauma in their background and none had processed it. None had had what I'm calling today an emotional release. So now let's talk about one more actual current diagnosis that might be called a nervous breakdown if you weren't better educated about mental illness. It's called an acute stress disorder, basically a shorter version of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Like PTSD, there has to be an extremely traumatic event that caused it, like near death or death of someone else. And it's an anxiety disorder predominantly with dissociative symptoms, feeling numb, detached, or being emotionally unresponsive. What are the symptoms of acute stress disorder? There's first a reduced awareness of your surroundings, meaning that you feel a little fuzzy, like you couldn't quite describe what was around you if you were trying to describe it to someone else. You're not particularly aware of how hot it is, how cold it is, whether the wind is blowing or not. Then there's a sense of what's called derealization, which occurs when your environment seems strange or unreal to you. So this means that you don't recognize what may be familiar. Rather, you see it as strange or even a little frightening. There's something called depersonalization, which occurs when your thoughts or emotions don't seem real or don't seem like they belong to you. And the last one is called dissociative amnesia, which occurs when you cannot remember one or more important aspects of the traumatic event. Now, I've seen this a fair amount. For example, someone has a terrible car wreck and they can't really remember what happened before or after. They've dissociated from something that they're not ready to see or process yet. So I know that's a lot to wrap around and embrace, but that is basically what an acute stress disorder. So again, now we understand that nervous breakdowns could be conversion disorders, they could be psychosomatic disorders, and acute stress disorders all might have been called nervous breakdowns back in the day. But if someone uses that term now, it brings stigma into the picture big time. And the unfair thing is that no one chooses to experience the traumas that can cause these problems. This is not manipulation. Manipulation is overt, intentional. I guess I can intentionally fake something to get something I want or avoid something I don't want. But conversion disorders, acute stress disorders, and even some psychosomatic disorders are not manipulation. But before we go on, let's chat for a minute about a special offer from sponsor BetterHelp, one that I hope you'll try out. I was delighted when BetterHelp reached out to me as a potential sponsor what exactly is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is an online therapy service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. 
It's not a crisis line. It's not really self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. I also tried this out, of course, for my self-work listeners, and I was very impressed with the two counselors I tried. There's a broad range of expertise, and you're actually matched to the therapist that they believe will work best for you. You can have video sessions, phone sessions. You can text. And actually, it's much less expensive than, quote-unquote, normal therapy. And BetterHelp is rated number one by so many platforms that specialize in trying to help you find the best therapy online for you. There's a special offer for self-work listeners where you get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. That's trybetterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash self-work. You can begin getting help today, and I highly recommend it. So give it a try. So now we're going to talk about catharsis. Back to Freud and a colleague of his, Brewer. They believed that catharsis or an emotional release was necessary to work through or allow what had been unconscious and thus playing havoc mentally or emotionally. Let it emerge now in the conscious mind where the person is fully aware of it. Again, this was avoided or denied or dissociated from because the mental anguish of remembering would have been too great, or certainly it was feared to be too great. What catharsis is, is emotional relief, and it's also a mental phenomenon, as it's often accompanied with an aha moment or an insight. Freud and Brower did it while the patient was hypnotized, which I've done before as well. Hypnosis is simply a guided exercise with a person allowing their mind and body to quiet the conscious mind as much as possible and then to focus to relax and see what the unconscious mind brings to the table. It's sort of a way of reaching out from the part of you that is aware to the part of you that is only silently aware and stays in the background. Communication then between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. All trauma work is dealing with catharsis or emotional release. But you don't have to be hypnotized to experience that letting go. I've held many a patient as they finally allowed themselves to show compassion toward themselves and to allow very deep pain to emerge, even memories that had been suppressed for years. For those of you who know about my recent book release on perfectly hidden depression, many people identifying with that syndrome need this kind of experience. But also many people fear it because they believe it'll lead to what they might term a nervous breakdown their lives becoming out of control. What I point out to them, and I remember myself all the time, this work has to be done very slowly. It's kind of like playing Jenga. You don't want the whole structure to crumble while you're taking out a piece and beginning to work on it. So how do you know if you're ready for such an experience, that experience of emotional release or catharsis? Some people might know and remember exactly what they're trying to avoid dealing with. Sexual abuse, bullying memories, losing a parent when very young. You may have tried to deny the importance of that, but you've moved now into a place where you feel ready to address it. Maybe you're finally in a stable relationship, and it may seem odd to you, but that very stability can provide a foundation for you to actually risk connecting with those very old emotions. Or you may just be tired of trying to avoid it, knowing that there those feelings are waiting for you around the corner. So you decide maybe to go into therapy or do your own self-guided work and try to connect with those feelings. If you do, good for you. But you might not understand what's underneath your struggles, and yet life hands you something that you realize that it's necessary, that something is missing. 
I might hear someone say, for example, I've got to figure out why I'm binging and purging, or I'm going to have to be hospitalized, or I don't know why every time I try to finish school, I end up sabotaging my own efforts. It's expensive, and I'm embarrassed. Why am I doing this? Or, I've got to stop picking partners that are controlling and even abusive. You know there's a problem, but you've never connected the dots to what may have occurred or existed in the past that's influencing you in the present. And making those connections can lead to your own emotional release. Now, it is true, and I warn my own patients about this, therapy or talking about these things or trying to connect with those emotions may make you feel worse before you feel better. Here's my analogy. Think of your struggles, whether they're conscious or unconscious, as a big pot of soup on the stove with a very tight lid on it. You can see until it's hot because steam sneaks out the sides of the lid, but mostly it's fine. It's been there a long time. But then you choose therapy or, again, sort of a self-guided exploration of motions. Maybe you have a deeper-than-normal conversation with a friend or a piece of music or a movie or smell leads you to remember something you thought you'd forgotten. Whatever triggers it, the lid starts coming off, and suddenly out comes the steam, and the room is full of the smell of the soup. But in this case, it's smelly and awful. And now, to make things worse, you're in therapy. And in therapy, we start stirring that soup up to see what's in there exactly. You can feel overwhelmed. That's why, again, it's important to do this work carefully. So you won't have what used to be called a nervous breakdown. Instead, you feel it. You feel the emotion. And actually, you can become in control of that emotion. It's not like a boomerang. The feelings may get triggered again, but you've already discovered them. So connecting with them isn't as potent, basically. The lid isn't on so tight. Again, what might trigger this is therapy. Someone guiding you to those emotions, but also things that just happen in your life that remind you suddenly of the trauma. If this is you, you may want to seek therapy because trauma work is very hard to do on your own. You certainly tend to remember those moments, the times that you've become more aware or more mindful of what you may not have realized or felt, and those times can change the course of your life. Those moments can be freeing and very liberating. They're a little scary because you don't know how that moment might change you, but it's so worth it because you'll be able to eat normally and not purge. You'll finally finish your academic career, and you'll find a partner who loves you for you and has no agenda to control you. Your life can change. One of those moments for me was after my second divorce. There were no cell phones back then, but my phone would ring every two weeks or so pretty late, and I always picked it up, knowing in my gut that it was my ex calling. It had been a terrible relationship and had ended in chaos and hurt. Just for your information, I was the one that had filed. So my therapist kept asking me why I picked up. After all, I'd wanted the divorce, and I'd make excuse after excuse. It might be my parents, but I had voicemail. It might be one of my colleagues needing help on an assignment. Again, that voicemail. I finally got quiet and said, because it's serving a purpose for me, and I have to figure out what that is. I started crying, a deep kind of hurt emerging. I'll never forget that. I had not gotten to that hurt until that very moment. I did finally figure that purpose out, but without that emotional release, it wouldn't have been possible. Maybe you could take a moment right now to wonder what might be holding you back from change that you want and need, and just maybe, what are the emotions you might need to release, and how might that help? 
Just think about it. Our listener email today is from someone from Thailand. I'm always struck by the incredible international flavor of these questions. But he was confused about self-pity and depression. Let's hear from him. Good morning from from Thailand. I don't know if this is the correct website for expressing my emotions. I feel I don't know how how what does it mean. I'm confused about between self-pityness and depression. I don't know which which one is correct to to identify what I have right now. If I'm having a self-pity to myself or having a depression, I just feel lonely. There are a lot of negativity in my mind. I am losing self-confidence. I actually was surprised to find out that I hadn't done an episode of self-work on self-pity, as I've done a fair bit of writing about it. So this man who reached out had read one of my blog posts instead of actually listening to a podcast. And he's very confused about whether he's being self-pitying or he's becoming depressed, saying that he's getting more negative in his thinking and losing self-confidence. Self-pity is to me more about seeing yourself as a victim most of the time, not seeing how your own actions are creating problems for you, or you're making things about you that aren't about you at all, so you're over-personalizing things around you. You see people as rejecting you, manipulating you, things aren't fair for you. That's self-pity. Depression, however, isn't necessarily that, but someone who struggles with depression could also pity themselves. But in his case, depressions could certainly be occurring. It tends, like most illness, to emerge in your late teens or early to mid-twenties. And realizing that he's traveling from a place where he used to be confident to a place of non-confidence suggests that his functioning has been a lot better in the past. So he may not have the character trait of self-pity. He's seeing and feeling a change in his own behavior and his own beliefs. I definitely recommend that he go to a mental health professional to get this potential depression checked out. It sounds like because he senses a change, it could very well be depression. Thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the ratings and reviews that those of you who have left them on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. That is obviously one of the largest platforms and means the most because it simply lets people know that you value self-work. And for those of you reading Perfectly Hidden Depression, my new book on how perfectionism can actually hide real depression that's underneath real trauma that needs to be released. This person needs to have a catharsis (laughs) in a really serious way. The people who identify with perfectly hidden depression need a catharsis in a very dramatic way. Some of you have left ratings and reviews. Of course, a review is a written statement. Rating is simply checking something off. I had the lofty goal of having a 100 of those, and I'm up to 49. (laughs) So, I would really appreciate it if those of you who are reading the book or have finished the book, give me an honest review or rating if you're more comfortable with that on Amazon. That would mean so very much. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com and more and more of you are subscribing there. It's a tremendously easy way to keep in touch with me, with self-work, and to see my weekly blog post as well. You'll only get a weekly newsletter, I promise. 
I'm developing more of a presence on Instagram and really enjoy that venue. Starting to do some IGTV slowly, but surely I had to kind of figure it out first. I'm over there as Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And you're all invited to join my Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And just a reminder, Perfectly Hidden Depression is also now an audiobook. It's doing very well in that form, which doesn't surprise me at all. And again, thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for being here. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been self